ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. The 19th of February, 1937. A Stinson passenger plane leaves Brisbane for a routine flight to Sydney. But it never arrives. Instead, its disappearance sparks one of the most extensive air searches Australia has ever seen. Hello, I'm Kirsty Melville, and this is Lost and Found on the History Listen. One week after the plane goes missing, bushman and dairy farmer Bernard O'Reilly sets out on his own to find it. For two days, he treks through a vast, dense, mountainous wilderness. And against all the odds, he finds two passengers still alive, and the story becomes legendary. But what of the crash itself? Producer Lynn Gallagher dives into the coroner's report to re-examine the evidence and to find out exactly what went wrong on that fateful journey. Coroner's report. Subject. Stinson plane crash. Note. This is a summary of the report made in connection with the inquiry now proceeding. Into the accident of the Stinson aircraft. Call sign VHUHH. Uniform, hotel, hotel. It was here at Brisbane's Archerfield Airport that the plane took off. There was nothing unusual about the departure. The plane was in good condition and the pilots, Regional Boyden, aged 40, and Beverly Shepherd, 26, were sober. The co-pilot, Shepherd, didn't normally fly this route. He'd swapped his roster so he could meet his girlfriend, the famous aviatrix Jean Batten, in Sydney later that evening. Pilots on this route could choose, according to the weather, to fly from Brisbane to Sydney via the coast or go more directly south over the McPherson mountain range to Lismore and then on to Sydney. On this day, that was the plan. The weather conditions were okay. They weren't sort of nice and sunny as we are today, but they were okay. Um, There was some form of cyclone off the coast and there was reported rain in Lismore, and I believe there was some reported rain in Sydney, but the pilots decided that it was well and truly okay to depart from Archerfield. Departure, 1.05 p.m. I'm Rob Perry, I'm the general manager of Archerfield Airport Corporation. Welcome to Archerfield Airport. We'll meet again. It was an era where people actually dressed up to fly. You put on your best suit, you put your best dress on, It was an experience. In 1937, the Stinson Model A, the world's fastest tri-motor, was the most modern and luxuriously equipped plane in Australia. But that equipment didn't include a radio. My understanding is they did have a very rudimentary radio, but it was very, very basic, and the pilots weren't trained to use it very well, and it was all Morse code. It was not um, voice radio as we use it now. And this lack of radio isn't something that either pilot would have worried about because there were no transmission towers along the route anyway. So that morning, getting ready for their five passengers involved business as usual. They, they would obviously have reported for duty. The first things they would have done was to go through the weather reports. They would have checked their planned routings. 
They would then go through the maintenance reports, look for the um, aircraft logs, were there any issues that had to be fixed. They would basically be getting themselves in a mindset of what do we need to go from Archerfield to Lismore to Sydney. Witness 1, Robert Harold Fannin Graham, dairy farmer. Just after having dinner on the 19th of February, he heard the Stinson plane. It was flying very low and appeared to be trying to rise but could not. The weather was blowy. The following day he went into town and learned that the Stinson was missing. He thought then, in his own mind, it did not get over the mountains. But he did not report his fears to the police. Witness 2, Helen Jurd, wife of Robert Edward Jurd, Burnham Road, Bow Desert. Also saw the plane flying low, much lower than it usually travelled, and noted a terrific gale was blowing. When she heard that the plane was lost, she discussed the matter with the previous witness. After thinking it over for a few days, she decided to telephone Archfield Aerodrome. She told the person who answered how she saw the plane and about the weather. However, she was told that the plane had been seen further south at Corumban at 2pm. She told the person that the mountains would have to be thoroughly searched and was disappointed when she heard on the wireless that there was not to be a search from the Brisbane end as the plane had been seen near Sydney. In the mountains on the border between Queensland and New South Wales is O'Reilly's guest house and it's here that Bernard O'Reilly heard about the missing plane. As well as being a grazier, Bernard was a poet, a musician and quite a religious man and this is where his search started, not where it ended. Yeah, well, that's, that's generally the biggest mistake everyone makes because they all think the Stinson crashed here, whereas it's not the truth at all. The Stinson crashed quite a long way away, about 25 kilometres away, uh, and there's uh, a track for the first uh, nine or so now, but after that there's no track. It's just a trail through the bush, which is where Bernard went. There was no trail at all for much for him. So... Um, Yes, it's, it's in a southerly direction from here uh, and right out in the, in the border ranges, another thousand feet higher than we are here. It's a quite a challenging walk. Shane is Bernard O'Reilly's great nephew. Shane O'Reilly, I'm the uh, managing director of O'Reilly's, I suppose. I've been here for, uh, I think this is just about my 34th year, so it's been a while. And uh, we're in the middle of Lemington National Park at O'Reilly's Rainforest Retreat. He wasn't around at the time of the Stinson, but he does remember Uncle Bernard. I remember as a kid, people still come up and interviewing him all the time and him going through the stories. And, and uh, I know here, even probably today, maybe it's dawn a little bit, but nearly everyone that came through had an uncle or a father or someone that was in the armed forces with him because he was or in hospital with him when he was brought back and he got injured. You know, he, he's, he, he was quite well known uh, and uh, he was a bit of a celebrity in that, in that respect. But he never, I don't think it uh, changed him a great deal. He was the same mm. fairly basic sort of fellow. And I said he, he kept writing books and kept writing poetry and, uh, and he loved the birds and the, and the stars. So uh, that didn't change. Witness three, Reginald George Robinson, manager of Airlines of Australia. When he first heard of the missing plane, he was informed that it had been seen around the Hawkesbury area in New South Wales. 
He kept in touch with head office and heard further reports the plane had been in this locality. Definitely. So, this is where the search was focused. With no result. By the time Bernard got to going, the search was, was being wound up because they had spent a week at that stage searching and around the Hawkesbury area in, the, in north of Sydney and, you know, they heard cries for help. They had witnesses had seen the plane come down. Uh, you know, when, when John Proud was found, eventually by Bernard, his requiem mass was on in eastern suburbs of Brisbane and the police had to go and stop it mid-service. And uh, that wasn't, didn't go over very well, I believe, with the priest. He wasn't too keen on stopping it. Ashes to ashes. <clears throat> ashes to but ashes. But they ended up stopping it and, and finding that he was still alive. They couldn't believe it. Dust to dust. Witness 4. Francis Edward Buchanan, licensed pilot. After speaking with the office of the airlines, he made a search of his own over the National Park, towards Nimbin, and in a direct line over the spot where the wreck was later found. But when he flew over it, he did not see it. The official search dragged on for nine days, but it was 800 kilometres too far southeast. Reports from eyewitnesses had confused the authorities into thinking that the pilots had taken the coastal route. And if that was the case, they, the authorities, believed it was even possible for the plane to have plunged into the sea. They normally flew from Brisbane uh, over the ranges into Lismore, or if the weather was bad, they would go by the coast and you'd, they'd skip Lismore, apparently, if you had a ticket bad luck. Um, and this day they had decided, without any doubt, that the plane went down the coast because the weather up here was so bad. However, when Bernard, a week later, went down to the valley, where his other brother was living, Herb had moved to the valley, uh, Herb told him, no, the plane went up this valley, I heard it. And Bernard said, oh, well, they're all saying it went down the, the coast. And Herb said, no, it definitely came up this valley. So Bernard just went back, when he got back to the house, and drew a line from Herb's house to Lismore, and said, where it sort of crossed the highest part of the range, said, well, if it was ever going to crash, it'd probably be in that area, and that's where, exactly where it crashed. There are gaps that haunt this story still. Not how did this happen, but how did we not stop this from happening? This is what the coroner's inquest is seeking to find out. Witness 5, Charles Francis Hughes, <coughs> dentist. Knew the deceased, Roland Graham, and said he would recognise his upper denture if he saw it again, as it was he who had made it. The denture was presented to the court. And identified as belonging to the deceased. <coughs> Witness 6, Charles Bonham of Dunmore Terrace, Auchenflower, Brisbane. Drove crash survivor Mr Binstead to the aerodrome and stated that Mr Binstead had left his umbrella behind in the car when getting into the plane. This was considered to be bad luck. Because of the umbrella? Because his wife didn't like aeroplanes? So he booked under the name Barnett. So as not to worry his wife. Witness 7. Ernest Lawson. Associate of James Westray. Noted that on saying goodbye to the deceased at 9.45am on the morning of his death, he perceived James Westray, aged 25, to be looking forward to the flight as he was travelling home to be with his wife in Sydney. All in all, there were seven people on the plane, 
The two pilots were killed on impact. Two passengers at the rear of the plane, William Fountain, aged 41, and James Graham, 55, were burned to death in the fire after the crash. And of the three who survived, one, James Westray, 25, died going in search for help, and the other two, John Proud, 29, and Joseph Binstead, 54, we'll hear from shortly. Witness 8, Bernard O'Reilly, Grazier. Stated that in spite of news reports about the search being conducted down south, he thought it was possible that the plane did not make it over the mountains. On Saturday the 27th of February, eight days after the crash, he rang a neighbour to check the direction of the plane. He always believed his entire upbringing as a child, right through here, uh, was gearing him up for that one act to go out and find those guys. So it's unusual for a dairy farmer, uh, and he was different to the others, brothers, to be a dairy farmer who liked operatic music, enjoyed writing poetry, and could read all the stars and guide himself by the stars. So he's, that was very different to all these other brothers who were up here dairy farmers with him. So he was seen as a little as different to the others. And he always believed it was because he was geared up to do that one act. Mr O'Reilly set out alone. Packing a swag with bread, butter, tea, onions and a snake bite kit. He covered between 8 to 10 miles that first afternoon. The going was rough. Steep gorges covered by undergrowth. At 8am the next morning, he saw some discoloration on the range, about 8 miles away in a southwesterly direction. It was a burnt tree. That tree is now an important part of the story. Yeah, g'day. My name's Matt Kelly and um, I've worked for O'Reilly's probably 10 years, over a period of 12, 13 years now. Today, O'Reilly's guest house continues to be a place for bird watchers and bushwalkers. And Matt Kelly, who Shane calls the closest thing we have now to Bernard, does tours guiding guests to the crash site in Bernard's footsteps. Well, he was able to make out a burnt tree at eight o'clock that morning. But what, what happened on that morning is, and as he describes in his book, is the mist was kind of surrounding the hills, which is often the case up there. It cleared for maybe 15 seconds. He was able to make out that burnt tree. He, he knew the forest that well that he knew it was probably a fuel burn, not a lightning strike or an older dead tree. So that's what he was looking for when he went up there. So straight away he went, well, I've seen it. <laughs> I've got to keep going. Now, when, when you talk about how far can you see, from there he didn't see that, that crash till 12 hours later. And um, in that 12 hours, he would have been going up and down gullies, scrambling around cliffs, etc. Certainly he was not seeing where he was going. He just knew the direction he was headed and was crossing off the creeks and the ranges as he went. He knew there was four between him and that, that, that sort of burnt tree and that if he maintained that altitude, he would come upon that ridge within that distance. He could have easily missed it, but there were two survivors as well. So that, that kind of... There's a million things that went well that day for it to actually even occur. Yeah. You see that tree? He had to climb a tree. Because you're right, at the ground level you can't see it. So he climbed a tree, and that's when the cloud parted, and that's when he saw it. It's pretty phenomenal, and, um, yeah, it, it's actually... It's more difficult than you could possibly imagine, really, until you... 
you get out there and even then as i said it's taken me numerous times to actually get some sort of idea of what he might have experienced and the more i say it the more blown away i am that he actually did it yeah Mr O'Reilly continued thinking he could hear a faint cooey. Walking and cooeying as he went, he climbed up to Point Lookout. Cooey! Cooey! Then he got an answer, 200 yards away. The two survivors looked terrible. Mr Proud lying on his back slightly propped up and Mr Binstead alongside him. Both were close to death. Mr O'Reilly is a little hazy as to what immediately followed, but remembers being asked if he had seen a young English lad who'd gone looking for help. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Witness 9, Alfred Stanley Richards, meteorologist, said that weather reports are sent to all aviation companies every day. On the day of the accident, there were gale force winds of 40 to 60 miles an hour over the Lamington Plateau, and there would have been turbulence of high velocity on the leeward side of the mountain. So the, the, when the wind hits that, that range, it just goes straight up 4,000 feet and then huge downdraft on the other side and that's what this plane would have got into he would have been keeping low to the ground because the weather wasn't too good and he was trying to see and next thing you find he's being pushed down and down down the trees and he at the last minute they said he's banked to try and say oh well he's not going to make it i have to go back but of course he, he was too late and he hit the tree and down it came witness 10 andrew veach laughland control officer at archfield aerodrome said that there was no negligence whatsoever by him and that the plane had been unluckily caught in an unusually strong downdraft, one that exceeded the power of the engines. And emotionally, what sort of emotional landscape do these um, people who walk with you uh, traverse? It's difficult, but the, you just know that the, the challenge Bernard went through was far dip, more difficult than whatever we're doing. Um, on the rainy days in particular, it, it can be really hard. I've seen people really, really kind of <laughs> not quite break down, but they're, they're not far off and, and it's really gotten to some people. And um, it can get a bit claustrophobic too, you know, if you spent so much time out in the rainforest and, and it's quite closed in. So to There's give you an idea. Something about the right? human frailty is perhaps that's what draws people in. Oh, for sure. For sure, yeah, and you, and you do feel it, yeah, yeah. But the the thing that sticks with me the most is that he continued, and um, to persist with that, not knowing that there was actually a crash there, uh, or 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 a mind full of doubt, you could easily turn around and go, "This is too hard, and and probably a bad idea." Um, but he did persist with it, and somehow those two were still alive, and and were able to call him in. So. That's mind-blowing group for me, yeah. James Westray, the young Englishman who went for help, fell down a waterfall, but he wasn't killed instantly. Witness 11, Charles Robert Steinhardt, 
At about 5 minutes to 11pm on Sunday the 28th of February, Mr Steinhardt heard the phone ring and after answering it, was advised that Bernard O'Reilly had found the plane and that two men were alive and that they were starting out to rescue them. Steinhardt joined the search party. At 4.30am on the 1st of March, 10 days after the crash, they started out on foot, following the right-hand branch of Christmas Creek into the mountain range. At 8.30am, they came upon the body of Mr Westray. It was sitting practically on the edge of the water, back to the stone. Legs crossed. Hands in the lap. Holding a cigarette. One shoe was off. Dr Layla, who was part of the search party, remarked that Westray had been dead for six or seven days. When the party reached the wrecked plane, Proud and Binstead were found in a weak condition, but cheerful. The following morning at daybreak, the search party started to widen the track to carry the two survivors down the escarpment on improvised stretchers. Another guide from O'Reilly's who takes nature walkers in Bernard's footsteps is Nathan Wilshaw. Nathan Wilshaw. I work here as a guide, guest activities. And one of those activities is the early morning bird walk. There's whipbirds, there's bush turkeys, king parrots, finches and too many crimson rosellas. Did you hear me say we refer to these as little stinsons? Call sign VHUHH. They're red and blue, exactly like the plane. How many passengers do they take? <laughs> as, as many sunflower seeds as they can carry. <laughs> it's such a big story, isn't it? A bushman goes out and finds people, brings them back alive, and then, like, it, it always touches me. See, the walk in there is... It's, it's tough, it's, it's tiring, all this adrenaline's going. And when you get there, all that's gone. Um, it's always very solemn, it's always quiet. Um, it's, quite, it's quite the place, it really is. We therefore commit this body to the ground, earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, ensure and certain hope of the resurrection of eternal life. Witness 12, Daniel Keefe, Sergeant of Police. At about 10pm on Saturday the 28th of February, he received a telephone message. As a result, he rang O'Reilly's guest house and spoke to Miss Rose O'Reilly, who informed him that it was true. Her brother had found the missing Stinson aeroplane in the National Park and two men were alive, one having a badly smashed leg. At the crash site, Sergeant Keefe saw the four dead bodies himself. They were badly decomposed. The skull of one had been completely knocked off. There was a stench. They were buried on the spot. Yea, though I walk in death's dark veil, yet will I fear no ill. For thou art with me, and thy rod and staff me comfort still. My Lord's my shepherd, I'll not want. He makes me down to lie. In pastures green, he leadeth me. I don't fly much. I'm not a big fan of flying. Um, I've been in a few small planes, and it's something that pops into my head when I'm ever in a small plane, and it's unnerving because <laughs> I can know that I know the potential outcome. Witness thirteen. Crash survivor Joseph Robert Binstead, 
of Collingwood Street, Manly, New South Wales. He had a double seat, numbers six and seven. He said after flying for about 25 minutes, he noticed the weather beginning to get bad, and at about 1.30, the plane bumped several times. He noticed they were close to the treetops and became concerned. Then there was a crash. It seemed like the tail was knocked off. Then there was a second crash, and the right wing was knocked off. The plane then plunged into a tree. He thinks he was knocked out. Sometime after the fire died down, Binstead realised three of them were still alive. Proud with a broken leg, himself, and Westray, with burns to the back of his hands. At about 6.30am the next morning, Westray said, I can see a farm down there with some sheep on it. I'll go and get help. We told him there was no farm and not to go. After Westray left, Binstead went out to look for water and found a creek. He filled a thermos flask from the plane with water for himself and proud. As the days went on, he found it more and more difficult to make the trip. He attended to Proud's leg, which was very decomposed. They used to clean it out with a pen knife. It had become fly-blown. At about 4pm on Sunday, the 28th of February, he thought he heard a cooee. He called to Proud to cooee back, as he had a stronger pair of lungs. And a voice called out, Right-o. A man appeared. Binstead said, Hooray. And O'Reilly, for that was the man's name, said, You poor bastards, and then apologised for calling them that. He told them he wished he had been there six days ago and seemed to break up and could not talk. To cheer him up, Binstead asked him, How about boiling the billy? After the plane was found, word went out and the entire community became involved. And this is how the story lives on. Tracy Wood is a writer and historian. Yes, well, I spent most of my life in South East Queensland and when I was growing up, it wasn't uncommon for someone to say that their grandfather or their great-uncle or their third cousin or somebody was involved in the parties that, that went up and found uh, the survivors and brought them out and cut the track to get them out. So it was, it was a legendary event um, that, that reverberated for generations afterwards. Memo. Upon closing this inquest... The coroner, Mr J.J. Lay... ...stated that the Act did not empower him to make any findings... ...but that he thought this inquest could scarcely be allowed to end without drawing some conclusions around the organisation of such a modern method of transport as aviation. These conclusions include improvements to the regular supply of up-to-date weather information... ...the establishment of reporting stations... ...and the utilisation to the fullest extent... ...of radio aids. Further tragic fatalities should not be awaited to provide the generation of reasons for the institution of such safeguards. Signed W. Cadell, assistant to J.J. Lay. Esquire. And so ends the coroner's report into the 1937 Stinson plane crash. Both crash survivors lived on into old age. John Proud even kept his leg, although he walked with a limp forever after. James Westray, like the other victims, was buried where he was found. And Bernard O'Reilly, the rescuer? Well, he died at the age of 71, 
and he wrote a book about his experience. Like this program, it's called Green Mountains. Sound engineer Matthew Crawford and producer Lynn Gallagher were our audio guides over this tricky terrain. Thanks also to actors Sally McKenzie and Adam Crouch. I'm Kirsty Melville and this is The History Listen. Join me again next time for more amazing stories of things lost and found. See you then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.